0: Hi, I'm Ollie. And I'm Kendall. And this is The Group Project. Today we're talking with Ryan Rittenhouse from Friends of the Columbia River Gorge.
1: Before we do that, I want to invite you to follow us on Twitter, at groupprojectpod. And we also are still running a survey uh, at onechange.com. That's one-change.com. Dash and the survey is about climate change and your experience with climate change. So we invite you to take that survey and follow us on Twitter. We spoke with Ryan and we actually had so much to talk with him about. We're going to split it into two episodes. This episode, we're going to be speaking with Ryan about recent successes with the Friends of the Columbia River Gorge as uh, they worked with a bunch of other community organizers and volunteers to mobilize against some big oil companies and also he talks a lot about different ways that we all can get involved with organizing and being active in the different things that we care about Uh, he gives some really great tips on that thanks for coming on ryan will you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be passionate about conservation
2: Sure thing, yeah, and thank thank you for having me on today. Um, I've I've worked for Friends of the Columbia Gorge for a little over four years now, and before that I was working and living in Texas uh, doing conservation work there. Uh, I know it's hard to believe for some people, but there are environmentalists in Texas, <laughs> uh, and I was very happy and and proud to to work among them. Um, some of the most amazing and inspirational. Environmentalists I know actually still work uh, down there today. Uh, something about you know I think uh, 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 diver- uh, controversy breeding uh, uh, tenacity or something like that. Uh, just some really inspirational people and and down there I, I worked mostly on fighting newly proposed coal-fired power plants. Uh, we also worked uh, to stop the expansion of some nuclear plants and we also worked to to try to stop the Keystone XL pipeline um, through Texas. A lot of people don't know. Uh, the specifics of that, but there was a whole leg of it that goes through Texas, and that leg did get built and has been operating for quite some time. Um, And there were some other things we did as well, Uh, a lot of of different things. And for the most part, we were very successful down there. Uh, We, at the height of all the proposals, there were 19 new coal plants proposed down there, and uh, we stopped 17 of them. So I think that's pretty good for Texas. Yeah, that's great. yeah, and I uh, prior grew to the, up
0: in Texas. So. Oh, you did? <laughs> did. Oh, where where yeah. at? Where we're at. In I, Texas? I was in Dallas.
2: Oh, Dallas, Dallas. Yeah. I was based out of Austin, but I did work all over the state because yeah. because these coal plants were spread all over, of course. Yeah. But um, yeah, but before Texas, I, I I'm originally from Ohio. I was born and raised in Cleveland, uh, the mistake on the lake, as our <laughs> rivals in Pittsburgh call us. Um, and I was so growing up there, I was no. Um, a stranger to uh, environmental contamination you know, a lot of people when they think about Cleveland and, and the past and environmentalism they think of uh, Lake Erie and how polluted it was and of course the Cuyahoga River um, which caught on fire a number of times actually uh, we actually even have a beer there made by a local brewery called the burning river beer <laughs> so it's, uh, not the not the best thing to be proud of I guess but it is something that they were known for so so growing up I was kind of you know aware of this and, and I loved the outdoors and and all that, and I took an environmental science class in college, which really opened my eyes a lot more to all this, and it just so happened that the, um, the WTO protests in Seattle happened the same year I was taking a deep ecology course in college, and a few of my classmates were actually able to go all the way from Pennsylvania out to uh, Seattle and, and were there for the WTO protests, uh, and they came back and gave us a firsthand account of it. But um, so that kind of sparked me off, and then after college, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and then an opportunity kind of just landed in my lap to go to sea with the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. I don't know if you're familiar with them.
0: I'm not. Would you tell us a little bit?
2: So they're an international maritime conservation organization. Um, a lot of people confuse them with Greenpeace. Uh, they're not Greenpeace. <laughs> they're distinctly different. Um, but one of the reasons is because the founding, uh, you know, orga- the founding father, I suppose, of Sea Shepherd is, is Paul Watson, and he was with Greenpeace in, in the early years. But he split off because he didn't think they were radical enough, basically. So <laughs> like Greenpeace isn't radical enough for you? Wow. Okay, um, but. That's that was, that's where Sea Shepherd kind of came from. And, and he's a pretty controversial figure and, and they're a fairly controversial organization. But, uh, when push comes to shove, they're pretty much the only group that's out on the high seas interfering in, in illegal whaling and fishing operations. So, um, uh, that's, that, that's what I, I, I got kind of thrown into the deep end then, as, as they say, yeah. <laughs> <Right away. laughs> um, but I loved it. I loved being at sea. It was, it was one of the best times of my life. I wish I could still work at sea. Uh, there's just not that many opportunities to do so. But, um, and I, and I did get to almost circumnavigate the globe with them. Um, and that included going down to Antarctica where they interfere with the Japanese whale hunt, uh, every year, uh, or at least have, have been for about over a decade now. Um, and that was very powerful. You know, it was very, rewarding in a lot of ways to you know it's it's very rewarding to see the direct application of your efforts bear fruit and you know we could we could actually we would drive drive by in the ship past whales that we knew weren't being killed because of our presence there Uh, and that's a very powerful reward to have reinforcing your you know your your spirit and your your efforts Um, but of course the whole time i was down there there was this little voice in the back of my head that was still screaming all the time about climate change (laughs) and sort of realizing that um well no matter how much illegal fishing and whaling we stop it'll all be for naught if we don't um do something to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change because of course the great whales are at risk of going extinct if if things get too bad because all the plankton will be disrupted. Most of it will die. And if, if that all dies, then the whales will die. So I wanted to commit myself to conservation work and environmental-related work that pertains to global warming in at least some capacity uh, since then. So when I got back from my year at sea, that's that's what I've been doing since. So I've been working for nonprofit environmental groups that in at least some way have been focused on um, you know combating um, what fossil fuels have been doing the planet and our society for the last uh, few hundred years or, well, a hundred years or so, I suppose.
0: Well, that's a really good, actually, segue to um, the the Gorge community recently had a huge success around the rejection of the largest yes. oil shipping terminal proposal. Will you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, definitely. So that was a, a major, major campaign. Um that Friends was only one uh, part of. We, we belong to a coalition of environmental groups called the Stand Up to Oil Coalition, uh, which largely came out of the Power Past Coal Coalition, uh, which is another big coalition of, env- of environmental groups. That that one was found around fighting the many coal terminals, and we'll probably get into that in a bit. Um, but then on the heels of those, those coal fights came these oil terminal proposals, um, big facilities that Uh, oil companies have wanted to build that basically they're not refineries and they're not anywhere that would be burning oil but they're basically just switching locations where they would be taking oil off of trains and putting it on a large ocean going vessels so it's a key infrastructure development point for the transport of oil and, and connecting it from its extraction location which is in either north dakota or canada uh, to the world markets uh, and the and the world refinery markets. So so that's um, taking
1: that's taking domestic oil and putting it on ocean vessels that would then, like you said, distribute it internationally. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's correct. Cool. Yeah, um, and of course the oil companies all said, you know, at, at at the initiation of all this, well, no, this is all for domestic consumption. Um, But there's absolutely no reason to be building these giant export terminals on the West Coast if you didn't want to be connecting into the international oil market. And when they first started proposing these, uh, this law was still on the books, a 40-year-old law that outlawed exporting um, domestically produced crude oil. So you had to at least refine it first in America before you could export it anywhere. That law, however, was repealed by Congress a few years ago. So it's now, after over 40 years of that being on the books, it's now legal for oil companies to dig crude oil, um, drill crude oil uh, or frack crude oil um, in the United States and just ship it out as crude oil anywhere in the world. So, And this would have been the, the just the terminal that was proposed for Vancouver, Washington. That terminal alone would have been the largest oil terminal in all of North America if it had been built. And so the idea that that was for domestic consumption is just absurd when you start putting the numbers together. This was the oil companies who are extracting fracked oil from the Bakken shale formation in North Dakota and probably also the tar sands developers in Canada wanting to increase their ability to ship out their product and connect it to the world oil market. So so that's what we were looking at, and it wasn't just a terminal in Vancouver. There were a number of proposals up and down Uh, The Washington coast, but the Vancouver one was by far the largest. It it would actually have exported been able to export more crude oil than all the other proposals combined. (laughs) So it was truly, truly massive. And so this coalition came together well over, I mean, it was dozens locally and and throughout the Washington, Idaho, Oregon, Montana and Wyoming areas. And and it was uh, like 200, maybe more organizations all working together, all educating the public and and working to try to stop these proposals. And it was successful. Um, And we... Did it not only through environmental activism, which of course was a part of it, but so many different people from so many different sectors came together over this. The tribes were very integral in all of this. Many of the oil terminal proposals got denied, based primarily on the opposition of tribal treaty rights, which are sovereign rights that the tribes have, um, and they have, and all these most of the tribes in most of the locations where these terminals were proposed all objected to them and pointed out. Numerous ways in which they were violations of their treaty rates. So uh, that can't be ignored and, and was one of the most powerful uh, weapons that was brought to bear against uh, these terminals. Uh, but we also had huge coalitions of elected leaders and, and officials and other groups. So there's a group called Cela, which is the Safe Energy Leadership Alliance. That's a sort of loose grouping of elected officials throughout the Pacific Northwest. And, and it's growing beyond that, who are all committed to moving uh, past sort of these dirtier, old, mostly fossil fuel-based sources of energy generation onto safer, cleaner, more renewable sources of energy. Um, and a lot of them were integral in all this as well. And then, of course, you have port commissioners and things like that. There was a very contentious um, local fight going on with the Port of Vancouver and the three commissioners there. Uh, in the, the This went on for so long that two of the commission seats came up for re-election And both were ousted in favor of new people who ran primarily in opposition to the oil terminal. And and they won. They both won in landslides because the public just was so against this in Vancouver. So yeah, there's a lot. There was a lot going on there, and um, it was really kind of remarkable. And then, of course, you have FSEC, which is the Energy Facility Site Evaluation Council, which was the sort of the one-stop regulatory shop for uh, the oil terminal to get its permits. And they're the ones who recently finally finished all of their review process and issued a unanimous recommendation for denial of the project to Governor Inslee. And Governor Inslee had the final say, and he... Followed that recommendation and denied the project. So that was what was in the news and what was so big in January was that was the official regulatory denial of the project. And then the Port of Vancouver, the, the new commission, led by the new commissioners, uh, then on the heels of that, canceled the lease with Tesoro, who's the, the company behind the oil terminal. And so it's, it's pretty much officially as dead as any project of its kind can be. So,
0: Congratulations. What a huge accomplishment.
2: Thanks. Yeah.
0: Something I've been thinking about, and I think a lot of people are thinking about, is that it will take um, a lot of different groups coming together in order for these big changes and these big shifts to start really being successful. What do you think about that?
2: oh yeah and i th- i wish i wish i could, I wish I had the time to write a book about this experience maybe i 'll find time at some point because i'd really it 's really kind of remarkable what happened here in the Pacific Northwest with this fight in particular and i I wish that everybody could learn from it around the country and around the world because it really demonstrates it, and obviously there 's other examples of this being successful as well, but it just reinforces this notion that. You know, we worry so much about national level politics and we get demoralized when, you know, particular candidates whose names I won't mention win, <laughs> well, quote unquote win elections. Um, <laughs> and and that, that can be very demoralizing and can feel very frustrating when, you know, people at the highest powers of government are not doing what you want them to do and are not embodying the um, – the ideals that you would like to see embodied in, in the halls of power. But this demonstrates that really local action is what matters most. And you can still get amazing things done regardless of who's in charge federally if you come together and work together as a community on the local level. Because all of the things that matter, every decision that impacts our climate, that impacts our world, It all is having, at some point, it boils down to a local level issue, whether that's getting permits to do fracking, mining or drilling operations in an an area, whether it comes to building a transport terminal like we're talking about in Vancouver, or whether you're on the demand end and you're talking about regulations at your local public utility commission or, or anything along those lines. There are ways to get involved and ways to impact this entire process that don't require a giant overarching view. All you need is working together with momentum and with people like you who care about this on the local level because you know this this was a when you think about this in in the grand terms of it and you think about the oil industry it seems incredibly daunting. The idea that you could go up against these multinational multi-billion dollar you know maybe even trillion dollar corporations and win. But this this effort of theirs to try to reinvest and double down on fossil fuel development, dirtier fossil fuel development for decades to come, was stopped because it all hinged on them being able to build one facility in Vancouver, Washington. And when we stopped that, we stopped a massive amount of future infrastructure commitment that would have doomed us to many more decades of fossil fuel extraction and use. So. That's really what I want people to take away from this is if you work together on the local level, if you get involved in your port commission, most people have no idea if they even have a port commission, much less who sits on it. And even if you don't live in a city that has a port, you have a county commission. Most people probably in America don't know anything about county commissions. They don't know who sits on them. They probably aren't even aware that they exist. So going to your county commission meetings, which are all open to the public, getting involved in them, learning who your county commissioners are, learning who even your city politicians are, which most people don't know that either. If you get involved on that level, you can make an enormous difference that really has ripple impacts throughout the country and, and potentially throughout the world. Um, so don't get demoralized if if you're feeling like there's nothing we can do. All it takes is you know there's the old quote from Margaret Mead about, oh, don't." Doubt that a small, committed group of individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. So, really don't don't take that as just lip service. It really is true. And if you get involved and you get committed on the local level, it's amazing what can be done.
1: So, when you mention that, like for for folks who might be interested in in getting involved in that way, is it is it as simple as going to those commission meetings and uh, observing, and, and then is it, is it something where – I've never been to a county commission meeting, um, but is it we something – are one of
2: those people. Yeah, yeah most I probably wouldn't have either if I wasn't working <laughs> right. in the field. You know? I, I, I've only gone as my job. But, um, and, and really, you know, and I don't mean to make it sound like it's easy because it's not. It takes a long time, and that's, that's one of the other things to keep in mind and not get demoralized about is you're not going to make change instantly. But if right. you stick with it and you, you play the long game, um, you can really see good good impacts and good change happen and that and that 's where it starts. It just starts with realizing that you know maybe one once a month or maybe once every couple of months, do something that involves your politics on the local level and that starts with just even going going to yeah a commission meeting and seeing what it 's like, seeing who your commissioners are and what they stand for, what they care about, the kind of things they 're bringing to the table. And, and just getting involved because in, you might live somewhere where at least right now you don't have an opportunity to do anything. It may be that you know there's no major energy project development in your area or anything else. But even if that's the case, there's still going to be things going on with your utility commission or your, or your private utility. If you live in an area with a private utility, there's still ways to influence them. And there's probably groups already active in your area that you just don't know about. And that you'll get connected to just by showing up to these meetings.
1: Yeah, it might be and as simple as, as introducing yourself to the the person sitting next to you at one of these meetings
2: exactly. to, to start exactly. to get involved. And if there isn't already a group in your area, start it. <laughs> like It's really not that hard. Like As somebody who's helped small rural communities start up their own little community groups – it really isn't that hard. Um, you just you know set a date every month to start meeting and you set an agenda you elect some officials and you you start talking about what's important to your community and what you want to see change and that might be something as simple as updating the rules for rooftop solar in your community. you know a lot of places don't have good regulations on that still. Um, So even small things like that, even if you don't have a big oil terminal to fight, there's things you can do that will make a really big difference that will help us transition from this mire we're in right now that's committed to fossil fuel extraction and burning to a truly renewable and sustainable energy future.
0: Um, So I have a question. How do you sustain yourself over the long haul of this?
2: <laughs> uh lots and lots of uh companionship with fellow <laughs> activists um i i have to find ways to decompress and, and detach and unplug myself personally because um, cuz that's it's interesting you ask that because that is quite an issue in in activist circles um, um organizers a- activists and organizers um who i've worked with over the over it's been over a decade now uh the issue of burnout is is very real in this in this field um, we get a lot of young people who come in all idealistically and very and to go, and they overwork themselves, they, they work too many hours, uh, they get underpaid, they don't eat well, they stress, and so they don't sleep well. Um, and so self-care is actually something we take very seriously in in the organizing circles, well, at least the organizers do, and we're trying to get everybody else to start taking it seriously as well. Um Because it is – it can be very demoralizing. I mean even just meeting the people in in what we call either frontline or fence line communities, um, and that's the other thing that you'll find when you start really getting involved in your local communities. You'll start getting connected to fence line and frontline communities, and what I mean by that is I mean the people who live in the areas that are located nearby – Sources of industrial pollution. And these are typically disenfranchised um, communities, uh, communities that don't have a lot of political power. Um, they're often communities of color uh, because we still have systemic and institutionalized racism in our country, unfortunately. Um, and hearing these people's stories is can be very emotionally draining. I mean, I remember in Texas, one one of the most egregious examples of this is in Houston, Texas, uh, in the Houston Ship Channel. Um, A lot of people don't know that in Houston, there's no zoning laws. So there's none at all. So you can locate a housing residence immediately next to a large industrial facility. So you have tank farms full of toxic chemicals right next to homes, Along the Houston Ship Channel, and there's whole communities there in Houston, and there you can look them up online, and they actually do a toxic tour every year. In fact, they just completed the last toxic tour. uh, There's a great community there called Tejas in Houston, T E J A S, uh, which is an acronym as well. But they're one of the most awesome grassroots local organizations that's been fighting on environmental justice issues for a long time and and you just hear these stories of how you know cancer rates or something like I, I don't remember off the top of my head but many times the normal background level um and just the stories that people have to tell you of um what they've gone through and what their neighbors have gone through can be really draining and really emotionally damaging but you know you just have to remember you know that's why we're doing this work. It's, it's not just because we think renewables would be nice. It's because of all these externalized impacts that most people don't even understand are happening. Um, that's that's really the the most urgent reason why we need to be doing this. Even if climate change weren't a problem and weren't an issue that we that were driving all of this involvement. We still need to move beyond all these things and address the issues of environmental injustice because of all these disenfranchised and, and inordinately impacted communities and people. Um, and so you have to remember to, to not just to not let that get you down and to let it inspire you instead. Because you know as hard as it, as hard as it is to come into these communities and see how difficult it is, you know it's much harder to be someone living in in that community. And so you can't allow the, the demoralizing impact of that to let you forget that you need to be working to emp- help empower and, and be a good ally to, to all the people suffering because of all this, this, this crap. <laughs> so.
0: Do you have any experience with counselors or therapists volunteering their skills to activists or the people in the community that like, activists are helping?
2: Hmm, That's a very good question. Uh, I I don't personally. I do know that some organizations do. Um, I I did work for uh, Greenpeace in the past. That's who I worked for just before um, moving here and working for Friends of the Columbia Gorge. They have a whole um, section uh, in in their office committed to um, sort of psychological and psychiatric care and stuff. Uh, That's pretty rare, I think. I, I don't know, for instance, that Sierra Club has that. I don't, I don't think they do. Um, and I don't know of anybody who, like, volunteers time in that capacity. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, it doesn't exist. Um, but that sure would be a nice resource for folks, I think. And not just for the organizers, but for um, volunteers and, and also, of course, people in, in the affected communities.
0: I think that those of us who haven't dedicated our career to conservation, but still want to contribute, often get like paralyzed with indecision. Mm -hmm. And I think that something that would be helpful for us to think about is that there are a lot of options and that there can be a lot of activist work that's like indirect in that sort of way, where if we are providing our skills to support the people who are more like on the front lines Mm -hmm. doing that work, that that can be helpful. And also, that's, just,
2: that's exactly right.
0: Yeah. yeah. And just also that um, I think people feel as though their contributions have to be huge in order for them to be significant. And I think that even if I mean, you hear this a lot and I think people don't really take it to heart. But if you are able to do um, donate either a little bit of money versus none, <laughs> you know, that that makes a difference or donate a little bit of time or um, just even putting a name on a petition like being one more name on that list, that those things do collectively have a positive and significant effect. Do you? I mean, is that your experience?
2: Absolutely, and I can't, I can't support that and and stress that enough um, because the psychology of of the human condition, unfortunately, I mean, you know, we're all these subjective individuals whose universe is centered around our own, you know, consciousness, and so we feel like if we aren't if we can't make a big difference, well then why even bother? But the truth of the matter is is you actually don't have to make that much of a difference to have a big ripple effect like I was talking about earlier. And even if it's just once a month or once every 2 months, just finding a way to plug yourself in, you have no idea how, you know, what the cumulative impacts <laughs> of that are going to be you might even if you're just even if you just end up talking to someone else you might then trigger a chain of events that you had no way of knowing you would you would be the impetus for and you might you know initiate what turns into thousands of people getting involved in in this issue um and it really all it really and like i said before i I really want to stress that it's it's a long game we're playing here you know you don't don't feel demoralized when you don't see things changing instantly or when you don't have a solution immediately at your fingertips when you when you feel that paralyzed because i feel it all the time too (laughs) and i've been doing this for over a decade um you know you feel like you know well, because, like, even recently with with um, the victory in the, in the oil campaign, you know, there's this kind of dangerous psychological trap you can fall into, which is, yay, awesome, we won this huge victory, but are we winning the war, so to speak? And, you know, I don't like using military analogies, but, um, you know, are we winning the overall campaign of moving us beyond fossil fuels? And you just got to remember not to assume that you are clairvoyant and know the future (laughs) and you've just got to keep pushing because that's all we really can do and all it takes and all you really need to do is like i said put in that one one day a month at least to start and maybe at some point you can get more involved but even and this is an important thing to remember too even if you have to scale back your involvement at some point don't let that Detach you and demoralize you. Either you know, keep at least coming back once a month or once every two months and doing something, staying involved in some way, or at least you know, staying connected through email or 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 social media, so that you can continue contributing to you know, like one of our our best tools is these online petitions, and we we collect names and information and comments and all this stuff, and we and we were able to submit um, a quarter of a million comments in opposition to the Tesoro oil terminal. And that was, and most of that was simply people taking five five to 15 seconds out of their day to add their name to a petition. And it, it had a huge impact on on the process and on the notoriety and on the way the press picked up on all this and, and made it a big story. So even you know 30 seconds out of your day, once in your lifetime, and you can contribute to something that really, really does make a big difference. And it's important to recognize. And so it's important to remember that, you know, for you finding agency and finding reward and finding meaning in the activities you do, you sometimes got to remember that, you know, it it it's a part of something that's much bigger than yourself. But all- at the same time, is empowered through your individual contribution. If that if that all makes sense, I hopefully yeah. am not. I think rampant.
1: it's really. I think that's really well said. Um, yeah yeah
0: yeah how long um did that particular campaign last?
2: well gosh it depends on when you consider when it started but um I would say it, it, at at least four years so, if not longer
0: yeah
2: so, and some of these campaigns some of these environmental campaigns go on for decades. some people in some in some communities particularly if they don't get national recognition or support and they have to fight mostly on their own some of them go on for decades if not multiple generations i mean you have you have people like marie gunno in in west virginia who's been fighting mountaintop removal literally in her backyard for decades now and people all throughout that community out there who are local west virginians who have had their their homes their their communities destroyed literally blown up by coal mining Corporations who have been fighting this for decades and will unfortunately probably have to continue fighting it for decades. Um, You know, and and you know, like we've been saying, that can be demoralizing. But at the same time, what's your option to stop fighting? For some of these people, that's not not an option at all. They don't they don't have a choice. So you know, don't let yourself get demoralized just because you have the privilege and the capacity to step back from it and to go away from it and to retreat into you know a more insular you know life because there's other people that that don't have that option and don't have that privilege and so that's that's where I think our our responsibility comes from as as sort of you know weekend warriors or (laughs) um, activists by choice Um, we have that responsibility to to use our position and use our opportunity to to maintain that, that, that effort and that struggle and, and support those who really don't have a choice.
0: Um, what do you think was key to um, all the different groups coming together and collaborating successfully on mm. that particular mm. campaign?
2: Oh, well, that's a great question because <laughs> I've been I've been members of coalitions that don't work so well together, uh, and this was really a, a major success story. I think in terms of many different nonprofit organizations coming together and and working successfully together. I mean, we had. We worked locally here anyway, the main players were, uh, aside from us, Friends of the Columbia Gorge, there was uh, Columbia Riverkeeper, who people always confuse us with. (laughs) I I always get asked, you you work for Columbia Riverkeeper, right? I'm like, no, no, I work for Friends of the Columbia Gorge. Uh, But they're a fantastic organization, of course, and we work very closely with them on many issues. But Aside from them, there was the local Sierra Club. There was Physicians with Social Responsibility. Uh, there was Climate Solutions, who's based out of Washington. Um, uh, th- there were so many different organizations. Greenpeace was also involved. Um, many, many different organizations, like dozens of them. And really what what brought it all together and made it work was a the fact that so many of the people involved were were pretty well experienced and 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 talented and, and effective organizers who respected one another and who understood how coalitions needed to work in order to be successful. So we, we made clear understandings of what this coalition was about, what it was focused on, what it would be fighting. Um, and we we kept the business focused on that even though all of our organizations had other stuff going on and still do um when it came down to do coalition work focused on this terminal we we focused on that and prioritized that um and i've i've never worked with a coalition that was as effective and was as mutually respective respectful um as this one and i was very very honored and proud to be a part of it um it also helps that a lot of these, you know, some of these other uh, organizations that are, you know, undeniably larger than than Friends is, than Friends of the Columbia Gorge, that have either national or at least statewide reach, um, you know, they recognize this and they set it as a priority. Um, they recognize the danger this posed and they committed resources to it. Um, you know, we could have never handled the kind of uh, budgetary demands that this campaign required if we were doing this on our own or even if it was just us and columbia riverkeeper doing it on our own um the fact that we got organizations like sierra club like climate solutions like greenpeace um to contribute and to contribute in a meaningful way along not just as signing on to the coalition but committing resources to it uh really made a difference. And. Um, you know, working, because I, I do have experience working for more national organizations like Greenpeace, and sometimes it's a struggle to get them to uh, recognize the importance of a particular fight and to convince them that this is something that deserves their granted limited resources. Um, but if they do commit and if you can get them involved and, and dedicated to it, then it really does make a difference. And that goes for members of the public too. Um, if you can really build momentum and build support, not just financially, but um, in terms of volunteer commitment hours and all that kind of stuff, then you really can have a have a good impact. And you don't always need that. You know, I don't want to make it sound like you have to get a national organization involved to be successful. Um, the most important and vital thing is empowering and and uh, bolstering up the local uh, folks who are most impacted by these projects. Um, and you can do that even without it. But it certainly helps. <laughs>
1: We want to thank Ryan for his time. And again, we're going to pick up the rest of the conversation in the next episode. Again, you can follow us on Twitter at group project pod. You can fill out our survey at onechange.com. change.com. That's one dash change.com. There's a survey about climate change. And we would welcome your ratings and reviews on the iTunes store. Thanks for joining us.